You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. I'm so glad to have you here on our Bible Study Podcast. This week in class, we discussed 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-12, through 12, and talked about the living hope that we believers have in Christ. Although we're far from home, our hope lies in the God of the ages, who has promised us an inheritance beyond imagination and is guarding us for the day of our final salvation. For more information on our Bible study here in Brandon, Mississippi, visit LeslieAnnJones.com. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that you speak to us across the ages, Lord, and I pray that you will speak to us now as we study. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen. So what is one of the first questions that people ask you when you first meet them? Like you just met somebody at a party. What do they say? What's your name? What do you do? And where are you from? I do not know how to answer that question. It trips me up every single time. Dennis usually stands back and laughs. He's like, hmm, what's she going to say this time? How's she going to answer it? And it's because we moved a lot when I was growing up. When I, I was born in Natchez, but when I was three weeks old, we moved to Meridian. They were waiting for me to be born before making the move. We lived in Meridian until I was five, so I finished kindergarten there and then moved here to Brandon. I was in Brandon for first through seventh grade. And then, I mentioned this earlier, we moved to Franklin, Tennessee, where I lived until I graduated from high school. Um, And then, after graduation, I moved to Starkville, where I went to college, and graduated from Mississippi State in 2004, and I moved to Texas for a year. No, not even a year, just the school year. Ten months, that's all I lasted. That was my exile. It was hard. That year in Texas was hard. 
So, um, but Dennis and I got engaged, so I moved back to my parents' house in Franklin for five months until the wedding, and then moved to North Mississippi with Dennis. Now, he had been living in Corinth for a while in this tiny little apartment and using cardboard boxes as tables before I moved in. He had been there for 10 months, <laughs> but when I moved in in October, we got real tables. That was a thing. So we lived in Corinth for less than a year because in September of the 2006, we bought our first house in Iuka, Mississippi, which all of you have heard of. I am positive. It's about 30 minutes east of Corinth. It's as close to Tennessee and Alabama as you can get and stay in Mississippi. Both of my children were born in Alabama because the hospital in Iuka does not do babies. Like, if you went, there is a hospital, but if you went, they would turn you away. No babies here. You've got to go to Florence, Alabama, or you've got to go to Tupelo. No babies in Iuka. So that's where we lived. We lived there for six years. And then before we moved back down this way, because Dennis is from, he is actually from this area, he has no trouble answering the question because he spent the first 18 years of his life in one house. So... I don't know what to say when people ask me where I'm from, and it has caused a lot of trouble. Why do we, why do we ask this question? Why, why do we want to know where people are from? What does it tell us? Do you, it helps us make connections, right? Do, do you know this person? Hey, I went to school with them. Or, hey, have you ever eaten at that restaurant? Or maybe they had some place that you go to sightsee, you know, some special place, all those things. So we try to do it to make connections. Why else? What does knowing where someone's from tell us about them? The culture and their family. You know, um, Texas is its own continent. <laughs> they think they're the South. They will say that they are the South, but they are not the South. They don't serve sweet tea at all the restaurants. And the cheese that they're right at the Mex- Mexican, their Tex-Mex places, is yellow, not white. So clearly, it's not like the real South, where we serve white cheese dip and sweet tea everywhere we go, right? Okay, so when you know where someone is from, it tells you a little bit about who they are, right? You know the culture that they're raised in. You form this opinion of the things that are important to them just immediately, whether it's from their accent or the clothes they wear. Um, You can tell a lot about a person by knowing where they're from, right? So it's no wonder that Peter opens this letter to these scattered believers in this whole region of the world by reminding them where they're from. They're homesick. And he wants them to remember not just who they are, but also what God has done for them and what that means while they are away from home. So in this time that you are spending here in this place that's not your home, first of all, remember who you are, remember where you're going, and that will carry you through. And so that's what he's doing for them. It's what they needed to hear. He's, you know how um, when you're in a bad circumstance, (laughs) when things are not going the way you think they, like all you can do is look at what's happening around you, right? But Peter, standing from afar, writing to them from Rome, kind of looks at their current circumstances and he recasts it in like a heavenly light. And he gives them a different perspective and it changes things for them. 
It's exactly what they needed to hear. So the first thing that he does in verses 1 and 2 is remind them that they have a certain identity. So in verse 1, he, said he identifies himself first, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle of Jesus Christ is not really a title that we use. Why? Who are the apostles? Can anybody be an apostle? Like, could I be an apostle? No. <laughs> right. That's right. To be an apostle, you were, had to be one of his disciples. And like, I have never met Jesus on the road to Damascus like Paul did. That's why he got to be a disciple, an apostle, sorry, even though he wasn't one of the disciples because he did have an encounter with the Lord and the Lord called him to this ministry, right? So the apostles were people in the early church who carried a level of authority that was above other early church leaders, right? Because they had been with Jesus. They had been commissioned by him in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. And that's what they did. So Peter, when he's writing, they would have known exactly who he was. And to receive this letter from him would be like us receiving a letter from, I don't know, Billy Graham. If our church received a letter from Billy Graham, what would that mean highly revered right well peter was even more revered and especially at this point in his life he's near the end of his life remember we covered that last time you know the church has been growing for the past 30 something years since jesus you know died and was resurrected and so at this point he was held in high esteem by everyone and so when he identifies himself as an apostle he's also um saying that these words that come aren't just his words because y'all they're in the bible they're the word of god whatever i write is not authoritative whatever i teach is also not authoritative newsflash but peter as an apostle of jesus had that kind of authority and his words carried the weight so it's not just as if he was giving them some advice He was giving them the word of God, and it still speaks to us today, right? So he identifies himself first. Then he identifies them, um, verse 1b, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so he could have called them anything, right? He said to the believers and to the church in. But he didn't. He very specifically called them elect exiles. So what does that mean? What does the word elect mean? Chosen. Okay, think in terms of Old Testament when you are hearing that word. Um, what would they have thought of when they heard chosen, the chosen people? Who are the chosen people? Israel. Israel is the chosen people of God. And he's saying, you are part of God's people. You know, you feel like you are all alone, but you are part of something bigger. You have been chosen by God. Okay. Not only that, but he calls them exiles. So what is an exile? They are not in their homeland. So what exactly are they exiled from? They may or may not have been separated from their actual homes. A lot of scholars think that really they were probably in the same places that they grew up in. When he's talking about the dispersion He's talking about the church that is scattered through the area, okay? So it's not that the people themselves have been scattered from their homes. 
It's that you are elect exiles of the scattered church in this region, okay? So an exile is a temporary resident in a foreign land. It's temporary. It's not meant to be permanent most of the time. Now, sometimes the word has a sense of forced absence, right? Like you have to leave your home, whether it's for political reasons or war or something like that. But there's no sense of that really in this text. It's more like they're sojourners. They're travelers who are far from home. And he means that as the chosen people of God, that this world is not their home. This isn't home for any of us. So it's okay that I don't know where I'm from because it's not my home, wherever it is, right? Um, It's a temporary arrangement at best. And they need to remember it because the things that they are facing in this temporary home are hard. And they need to know that it's not forever what's happening right now, that it's going to end at some point, and at some point they're going to get to go home. So it's an important distinction for them to make because they were beginning to feel the effects of kind of ramping hostility toward Christians. Remember we talked about last week how this letter was written toward the beginning of Nero's reign before all the heavy persecution started. But they're starting... You know, the events that led up to that, Nero burning people to light them up and, you know, blaming the fire in Rome on the Christians, the conditions that allowed that to happen are starting to brew. And that's what they're living in. This is a people who are beginning to feel those effects of being different from the people who are around them whether it's people that they grew up around and had known for their entire lives or not, they had started to look at them differently and treat them differently because of what they believed. They were beginning to feel the effects in their families, in their work, in their social situations. Maybe they weren't getting invited to the same kind of gatherings that they were before. They were being judged for their faith. Their identity had changed Because as believers, their primary citizenship was no longer here. It was in heaven. And because of that, they were very different from the people around them. Now, I told you that I moved around a lot. I don't know where I call home. But I do know that the time that we spent in North Mississippi, it was like quite clear that that was not my home. So clear. When we lived in Iuka, it was the early days of, a, of our marriage, and it was different up there. You wouldn't think that North Mississippi would really be that different from Central Mississippi. I mean, we're not that far, right? Um, but everything was different. The food is different. Has anyone here ever had a slug burger? Y'all, they have a slug burger festival up there, and they are disgusting. Do you know what they... Okay, it's soybean meal and ground beef, like, mashed up together into a hamburger patty-like thing. But they don't grill it or, like, put it on a... No, no, no. They deep fry it, and they serve it on a bun. They're called slug burgers because they used to cost a nickel, and that apparently was a slug. So, slug burger... But, like, I never could. I, I, Dennis and I went to the slug burger festival the first year that we were up there, and I saw them making them. They had this big five-gallon bucket of, you know, the, the mix, batter, whatever you... And they had this ice cream scoop, and they would, like, scoop it out and slam it down on the 
surface of their table. And then they get the spatula and flatten it out and then fling it into the deep vat of oil. And I was like, nope, can't do it. Can't do it. Um, so the slug burgers, when you ordered a barbecue sandwich up there, you had to tell them that you did not want slaw on it. Like, it came with it. It wasn't like an extra addict. Like the first time I ordered a barbecue, I was so disappointed when it came with the slaw on it. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Why is there slaw on my sandwich? I didn't order that. So you had to tell them, do not do that. I do not want the slaw. I'm kind of a picky eater. No coleslaw for me. So like the food was different. And then, you know, Dennis and I were newlyweds, which we were some of the first in our friend group to get married from college. We got married about a year after we graduated, and um, then the very next weekend after we got married, the second couple in our friend group got married, and then a few weeks after that, the third couple. So we had all just gotten married. Um, Everybody was having their first jobs. You know, we're settling into life as newlyweds, but in Iuka, we were the only people in our Sunday school class who did not have children. And so, and I'm talking like there were people my age who had three children already, and I thought, what did you do? So it was just very different. Now, some of them are my very dear friends even today, but it was just different, y'all. And you want to talk about feeling alone and strange? Think about, like, you just got married, and every time you go to Sunday school, your teacher's asking you when you're having your kids. (laughs) We knew we were outsiders the whole time we lived there. It was things big and small the whole time. And as the years went by, we talked more and more about when we could go home to be with our people who thought like we did and who ate the same food and where we could order a barbecue sandwich without it coming with slaw. You know, all of those things are so small, but they add all up to make you feel very alone. But we long to be back home, to be with our people and in the place where we belonged. Now, if any of you have ever moved far off from home, you may have experienced the same thing. So for Peter's audience, they were both at home and not at home all at the same time. And they felt that tension in the same way that we do when um, we're looking at the world around us these days, right? Because even if you have grown up here and spent your whole entire life here, you probably feel really different from the culture that surrounds us in a lot of ways. Because just like they were experiencing a rising hostility toward Christians, so also are we. Whether it is in the media or at work, the things that you can and cannot say if you happen to work in the education system. Just think about the ways that we are not at home here and it is becoming apparent, right? So just like them, the choices that we make, the values that we hold dear, the things that we do or don't do, mark us as different from everybody around us. And different is not easy. It never is. Just ask a teenage girl. So right here at the beginning of the letter, Peter's reminding him and and us that even though they don't belong where they are, where they find themselves in this point in time, they belong somewhere that is altogether better. And that place is their true home. 
And he's also saying that however alone they may feel, they aren't. They're part of something bigger. They are the chosen people of God. They are part of the church that is scattered across this region. And he is doing something in them. And there, that's where they belong. Okay, that was a long time on verse 1, right? I bet y'all are getting nervous. Okay, uh, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, so let's pay attention to what Peter is doing here. In your homework, it pointed out that all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned, right? We have God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son, and they are all working together with a common goal, right? You have been known and have been known by the Father, not just now, but since before time began, the Father has known you. You are being sanctified by the Spirit. That means that you're being made holy by His work in your life. It is the work of the Spirit that led you to Jesus, who you are subject to. Notice that obey word that we all love so much, right? Yeah. We have been sanctified for obedience to Jesus Christ, who has cleansed us by His blood, right? He has saved you, and he is our Lord and Master. All of that in mind, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, you who are elect exiles, you who feel so alone, grace and peace to you. You're the chosen people of God, and though you are far from home, you are known. You are known. You are not alone. You are set apart for a reason. The Holy Spirit has set you apart. And you are saved. Know who you are and find your peace in that identity. You belong to the Lord. Okay? So he, gives, he reminds them they have a certain identity. The second thing he does is he reminds them that they have a future hope. Verse 3a. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again. Praise the Lord, right? Because he has done great things for us and he surely will continue to do great things for us in the future. So what has he done for us? What does it say here in this verse? He has. Yes, he has caused us to be born again. He has saved us. And, but why? Did you catch why? According to, according to his mercy. Because he is merciful. Did God save you because you were lovely and lovable? Because you were good? Because he thought, I know that girl. She can do great work for me. Is that why he saved you? No. It has nothing whatsoever to do with you. How's that make you feel? It sounds a little bit harsh at the beginning, but y'all, there is such freedom there. Because it's not dependent on us. It is dependent on him. Our salvation is entirely dependent on God's mercy, and he does not change. He is forever merciful, and he has given us that mercy and given it freely. And because of that, we who believe are given a brand new start. We are born again into the family of God. We are given a new birth certificate with a new father listed right there for everyone to see. And as children, what does that mean? What do children do? They inherit. So we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
the hope that we have as believers is every bit as alive as Jesus Christ, who is where? He's in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, the Lord God Almighty of heaven and earth. He is there. He is alive. Okay, so what, what, is, what is Peter getting at here? Why does it matter? What does he mean by living hope? So what is the difference between something that is alive and something that is dead? One's alive and one's dead. <laughs> okay, let's list the characteristics of a living thing. Um, a plant, for example. It responsive. Like, it, what if, like, if you plant a seed, what happens? It grows. And it grows bigger and stronger, we hope. Right? The larger it grows, the thicker the stem grows, the more able it is to withstand whatever comes against it. So living things grow in strength and maturity. They flourish. They produce fruit. All of those things, right? So for our hope to be alive, what does that mean? It's growing. And it does produce things in us, right? So a a living hope is a hope that grows over time. The longer you are in Christ the more your hope should grow. And this is one of those reasons why the older saints seem so secure and looking forward to their heavenly home because they've spent a lot longer looking forward to it and hoping for it than we have. The longer we are in Christ, the sweeter it sounds. He is alive and so also is our hope. So what is our hope for? To an inheritance. So what has to happen for you to inherit something? You have to be in the family, yes, a close relationship, absolutely. But some you have to be in the will, but what has to what has to happen before the will gets read? Someone has to die. Someone has to die. And so when it comes to inheritances, at least earthly inheritances, they are both a great blessing and they're, but they're usually tinged with sorrow because even though you have this great wonderful earthly thing, whether it is a home or money or property or your grandmother's diamond wedding ring, whatever it is that you have inherited, it cannot replace the person that you lost. But our heavenly inheritance is different because Jesus did die and it is his death that allows us to claim the inheritance, but he's also alive. And part of our inheritance is being alive with him in heaven. It's part of it, right? So Peter uses four words to describe the inheritance. He says the inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and that it is kept in heaven for us, okay? So imperishable, that means that it's not going to rot. It's not going to rust. It's not going to be destroyed. It's not going to, you know, go rancid or go bad or any of those things. It will always be good. Um, undefiled. It's pure. It's perfect. It's spotless. It is unblemished. Uh, unfading. It's not going to fade with time. New, if you've ever looked through like an old photo album, especially, or like a picture that's been sitting on display for years and years and years, it's not nearly as vibrant as it used to be. This is the opposite of that. Our inheritance is unfading. It doesn't lessen. It's not diminished with time. It is every bit as vibrant as it was or as it has been since the beginning. And then the last thing is that it is kept in heaven for us. Thank the good Lord because I don't know about you, but I, 
I just don't trust <laughs> much for sticking around in this world. In heaven, it is safe. It is guarded by the Lord. He has set it aside for us. And the hope is that one day we're going to return to this heavenly home. And when we do, this unimaginable inheritance is there waiting for us. Not only do we get to be with God, do we get to sit with Jesus, but this great unimaginable gift is waiting for us. And nothing on earth can destroy it. So, verse 1-5, God is keeping the inheritance for us, but he's also keeping us for the inheritance. It says, the inheritance kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. God's power guards us through faith. For what? A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By his power and through our faith, God is guarding us and protecting us until the day when we can finally return home. And this is good news for exiles, right? Because the world we are living in is not a safe place. It is the opposite of safe in so many ways. We know that because we have experienced it. But the same God who is keeping our inheritance safe in heaven is keeping us safe so that we can one day receive it. He is caring for us. Okay, but let's pause here for on the last part of the verse where it says a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because already in these verses, Peter has been talking about salvation in the past, right? We have been born again. And here he's talking about, you know, the salvation that is to come. So I think it might be helpful to just take a minute and review the ways that the Bible talks about salvation because it will clear things up and it would help so many who feel the need to get rebaptized. <laughs> I think because salvation is an ongoing process. Okay. So when the Bible talks about being saved, you will, you will hear, um, you have been saved. You will also hear work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? You are being saved. And then verses like this one that are talking about the salvation that is to come. So the word is the same, but it's helpful to remember that it's a process. Three parts, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, those are churchy words, right? The first stage is justification. This is what happens when we turn to Jesus in faith and we are born again. This is what we talk about. I've been saved. I have been saved. I have been made just as if I never sinned in the first place. I have been made righteous. We are made righteous before the Lord. We are free from that point forward and forevermore from the penalty of sin. So that's what we mean when we say we have been saved. I will email y'all an article from Jen Wilkin that talks about all this, these steps. Sanctification the second part of the process is lifelong. It is ongoing and it is never done until the day we die and go to heaven. It is the process of being made holy. So I don't know about you, um, but I certainly did not stop sinning the moment that I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Did you? No, it is a struggle for all of us. From the moment of our salvation, when we are justified, until the day we die, we are being made more and more like Jesus so that we can 
at any point look back and say, well, I'm not like I was, but I'm sure not where I need to be. So sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit working in us to free us from the power of sin in our lives. It is disentangling us from sin's temptation and making us more into Christ-likeness, making us holy. That's sanctification. The third and final stage that Peter is talking about here, that someday salvation that we're waiting for, is glorification. And that's when we will fully and finally be free from the presence of sin. And where is the only place that there is no sin? It's in heaven. And oh, how glorious that day will be. Because the effects of sin on this world, not just in our own lives and behavior and the things that we wish we did or didn't do, not just, but the effects of sin on the world, death and disease and war and famine and natural, like the whole world is broken by sin and we feel it. We feel it every single day. So this future salvation is when we will be in glory away from the presence of sin. That is the inheritance, y'all. That is what we are hoping for and longing for, our heavenly home where there is no sin, where Jesus Christ is. We get to be with God forever and where we will be honored and welcomed and celebrated as an heir of God himself. Y'all, that is amazing. And Peter wants to remind them and us of it because that is what sustains us, is this hope. That's what he says, moving on, he says, in this you rejoice, okay? So even though, you know, you you may feel lonely and times are hard, you can rejoice because this is coming. Keep the end in mind because if it is not good, believer, it is not the end, It is not. There is a good ending planned for all of you. And that is why the third thing that he reminds them is that they should have a joyful faith. That is why you can sing. You can praise the Lord even when things are going terribly wrong. And I think this is so tender here in this verse. He says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Y'all, Peter knows that life is hard. Later in the book, he's going to get very specific about the kind of trials. But here, he just he's just talking about life is hard in general. Bad things happen. People we love die. They get cancer. Little girls fall and hit their heads and end up in the hospital while their parents are waiting for them to wake up for weeks on end. Things happen in this broken world. Y'all, I've got prayer lists up here for us. All you have to do is look at it to to know that we are all facing various trials. But Peter's saying, no, 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 no. You can rejoice. No matter what's happening in the world around you, you have cause for rejoicing. You can have hope. We are not like those who grieve without hope. (sighs) Things are hard, but it is not the end. Y'all, just in the past two weeks, I've had friends whose parents have passed away. 
Like I mentioned, the little girl who fell and hit her head and is in the hospital and has been for weeks. She's in a coma. She hasn't woken up. And I'm sure you could all name the trials that you have faced, the trials that your loved ones are facing. The hard truth is that as long as we are sojourners here on this earth, we are going to feel the effects of sin. And it hurts. It hurts. But there is something so beautiful and astounding, really, about someone who has walked through that kind of hardship and can still praise the Lord. It is the greatest testimony to what Jesus Christ has done for us in this world to be able to face that darkness and sing anyway. Because you know that the dawn is coming. It's coming. So no matter how bad things may be right now, if you belong to Christ, you can know that if it is not good, it's not the end, right? As surely as the sun will rise and dawn will come, so also will this pass. So what's the outcome of these Fantastic trials that we face. We all love to be tested, right? What's the outcome? In one seven, it says, The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For us personally, our faith is made purer, stronger, more genuine. All that extra fluff that we like to add on is just burned away and it's stripped down to its invincible core because it says here that that faith is imperishable just like that inheritance it is eternal that faith and it is strong but in addition to that praise and glory and honor come from it god is glorified when we have faith during those trials his name is made much of when we can stand in that darkness and sing his praises for him yes but also for us i think when it's talking about the revelation of jesus christ that is to come because this whole passage is about the rewards of faith right so not only is jesus glorified but we also on the day of judgment will be honored and commended for our faith and for what we did during those hard times now. Okay, we are going to wrap this up quickly. Okay, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter, who has seen Jesus... Peter, who did know Jesus, who walked with him and talked with him and ate with him and traveled with him and did all those things with Jesus, is marveling over the faith of people who have not. Why? Because Peter knew Jesus and he denied him. You remember that? So this is one thing that um, Jim Wilkins said in her teaching that I thought was just so true. For us, we often think, if I could just sit with Jesus If I could have been there for the miracles, my faith would be so much stronger. 
But Peter is saying, no, 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 no. You who have not seen him and who believe anyway, you are to be praised. That is a marvelous thing that you can do that. He's commending them and encouraging them for their faith. And what he says is that their faith is evident to everyone. Why? Because you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Y'all, this is so telling to me. Because we as Christians ought to be the most hopeful and joyful people in the world. But are we? How do we act on social media? This world is going to hell in a handbasket. Everybody hates us. Think about the kinds of things that get liked and shared and posted and reposted. How much is joyful and hopeful? We ought to be the most hopeful and joyful people in the world. But more often than not, we can be kind of dreadful. So let this convict you, or maybe I'm just the only one who needs convicting over it, um, that we should be known by our joy. We should be marked by it, by our, uh, our ability to see past the dark and into the light that's coming. Peter says that their joy is so deep that it could not be expressed with words. And he described it as being filled with glory. So they were so joyful and hope that it literally radiated off of them into the world. Like they were shining with glory. When I read this, I think of Moses in the Old Testament. And he would go into the tabernacle to talk with the Lord. He'd spend, I don't know how many hours in there talking with God, which let's just say that's kind of scary, face to face with the glory of God. But Moses did. But what happened when he came out? He glowed. He glowed with the glory of God. He had been in the presence of the Lord and people could tell. So here's the question. Can people tell from your life that you have been in the presence of the Lord? What are you radiating out there into the world? Is it the glory of God, the hope of Christ, the joy of our salvation? Or is it something else? The last section, which we all love, these last three verses, they're so clear. I call this section a privileged time. Okay, So they have a certain identity, a future hope, a joyful faith. And they are living in a privileged time. Verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So he closes his greeting to the letter with this weird little section about prophets and angels that at first makes no sense. But what he's saying is that it is a privilege to live on this side of the resurrection. The prophets in the Old Testament, the whole entire Old Testament, have you ever noticed how much of your Bible is made up of the Old Testament? It's over half. All of this is pointing to now. He's saying they longed for it and searched for it and they looked for it and they waited for it expectantly, but they did not get to experience it. 
And the Spirit foretold it all those ages ago. He planned for it, and He pointed to it, and He promised it across the ages. And the preachers who brought the good news to them so that they could believe, believed it and proclaimed it and died for it. And they preached it tirelessly. And those are just the people. All of history has been leading up to this point, and they are living in it. Even the angels, Peter says, wish that they could understand it, but because they have never sinned and they have always been in the presence of the Lord, they don't know what it's like to be separate from him. They don't know what it's like to be exiled in this world apart from the Lord that is ravaged by sin. So they cannot begin to fathom what a gift the gospel is. And the marvelous grace that God has given to us. Because they have no concept of what it would be like to be apart from the Lord. The fact that we are joint heirs with Jesus is a privilege beyond all imagining. And that is what Peter wants them and us to know. To recognize who you are, whose you are where you are at this point in God's story, and then let that truth with a capital T and that hope that is alive sustain you and carry you through this dark time that we're living in. Because if you want to make it through the darkness, you got to be looking forward to the dawn. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. God, for... For the tremendous grace and mercy that you have shown to us, for giving us the privilege of knowing you, God, and for speaking to us through your word, Lord. God, I pray that you would grow in us a hope for the future that cannot be quenched, Lord. God, I pray that you would shape us and mold us into the most joyful and hopeful people around, Lord, and that we would radiate your glory and your goodness to the world around us. God, help us to be yours. It's in your name that I pray these things. Amen.